merciless, unspeakable, raw, brutal, traumatic, relentless. That's chapter two of Lamentations. We're about to read part of it together, rewritten as a response. So Andy and Oscar, if you're willing to put the reading up on the screen. Last week we read the entire first chapter of this book. We're doing one week, one chapter at a time. This is a retelling of chapter two. The parts in bold are for you. How the Lord in his anger has humiliated daughter Zion. The Lord has become like an enemy, destroyed Israel, destroyed all its palaces, laid in ruins its stronghold, scorned the altar, disowned the sanctuary, delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of daughter Zion, stretched the line, did not withhold a hand from destroying. The elders of daughter Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of my people, because infants and babes faint in the streets of the city. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter Jerusalem? To what can I liken you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter Zion? For vast as the sea is your ruin, who can heal you? All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at daughter Jerusalem. Cry aloud to the Lord. O wall of daughter Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to God for the lives of your children. On the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. I will not say the word of God for the people of God this morning because of how we'll describe this book in just a minute. But I want to give you a little bit of background. Andy talked about the shape of Lamentations as a book last week, as a series of five poems that were written from various perspectives. And I want to tell you a little bit about the history of what was happening that caused this book to be written. In 586 BCE, the army of the Neo-Babylonian Empire destroyed Jerusalem and its temple because the kingdom of Judah, of which Jerusalem was the capital, refused to be loyal. The king of Babylon at the time, Nebuchadnezzar, who some of you may remember vaguely from Bible stories past, sought to counter Egyptian military power and political influence in Syria, Palestine. And so control of this area was really important to him. It was a turning point for power. Chapter 2 of Lamentations describes that siege on the city. A terrifying assault on a city so personal, so beloved, so 
cared for as an entity by the people that she's often, it's often referred to as a she, as a person with personal pronouns. She's often described as beloved. Well, chapter two is often in her voice. And so when we read this part of Lamentations, we need to take on the personification of the city, Jerusalem, ourselves to understand what eyes we're looking through. Now, Jerusalem was completely destroyed in this siege, collateral damage in a worldwide power struggle. And many of the people were exiled beyond, against their will to Babylon. They were pulled from the city. The people were removed and sent to the empire's center, leaving behind the smoked, smoking wreckage of their culture, of their families, of their temple, of their lives, of their understanding of how the world has worked and does work and should work in the future. All gone. Leaving behind their understanding of God's love for them as a chosen people who would be blessed and protected. This had been symbolized in the city of Jerusalem for 400 years. God's enduring and unending love for these people. As long as the city and the temple stood, so would their understanding of God's love for them. And so Jerusalem wails against the loss of God's protection. She is angry and she is hurt. And this is what Lamentations is truly concerned with. Not the technical socio-political details of war. Those don't actually matter much in the grand scheme of things. But the question at the heart of this book is why did God, who had once been Israel's redeemer and lover and protector, acquiesce to the destruction of that holy city and temple? God's own home and heart. The people literally thought God lived there. Where is God's love now? How could God do this? Now, understanding the name of this book is really important. Lamentations. Now, literally in the Hebrew, this is known as the book of how. The book of how. Jews read this book during the ninth, the ninth of Ab, which is an annual celebration. The day is Tisha B'Av, the day of fasting, which culminates at the end of three weeks of deep mourning, intentional mourning, every year. And it commemorates the many tragedies that befell the Jewish people throughout their history, throughout their history, particularly the destruction of the two temples in 586 BCE and in 70 AD. The destruction of those two temples destroyed the Jews' understanding of who they were. After Yom Kippur, this commemoration is the single most significant celebration and holy day of the Jewish year. And every year, they read Lamentations on this day, and every year they say, how? How did this happen? The word how connotes a sense of radical consternation and total disorientation. Think of the times in your life when you have said, how? How could this be? Just how could God obliterate the city that stands at the heart and soul of this nation? How could such destruction and suffering befall this people? I love that the Jewish people don't avoid that question, even today. 5,000 years into this relationship with this God, they still are brave enough to ask, how could you? How? 
even after holocausts modern and ancient, they still persist in addressing directly the God who has claimed them and has said that God would protect them. They still approach the throne of God and say, how? How could you? They still feel loved by God and, and know that God loves them and that they love God, and yet somehow, for some reason in this relationship, they note that sometimes God seems to disappear from the scene at significant moments and leave them to face an enemy alone. And as I was reading this scripture and hearing this story this week, I was realizing I felt like that. I have felt like that. So how? What an interesting question. Especially since this book of how, at no point do the people ask why. They never ask why. In fact, they seem to have decided that they know why or think they do. Their spiritual evolution at this point in the writing of um, the Hebrew scriptures has led them to believe that bad things actually do happen to bad people. We have evolved farther than that at this rate, but here they are and they think, we know why. God punishes. And so they don't ask why, but they ask other questions, maybe even more interesting questions. How? How could you, oh God, how us? You promised. You, you sent a rainbow. You promised. There was a promise to Abraham. You promised. To Moses, you promised. You promised a blessing. You promised blessing upon blessing. You promised. How? How could you? I think of the courage it takes to ask God this question. To ask the God of the universe, please explain yourself. I started working with trauma victims in some form um, about 20 years ago. I've been doing it my entire career in direct service, mostly and also in ministry. Primarily uh, victims of family and domestic violence and sexual abuse. Reading this text this week, I realized and remembered a few things about that work. The first is that I don't recall any client of mine, and there were hundreds, ever asking why. They seemed to think that they knew the answer to that one. In fact, our teams often spent a whole lot of time debunking their reasoning around that, convincing them that, in fact, no, society had told them that there was a reason, but in fact, it was the wrong reason. No. You didn't deserve this. No, you didn't do anything wrong. No, it's not your fault. No, you couldn't have done something different that would have made him a better person or not hurt you or not hurt your kids. No, in fact, no. But the how question. Now, the how question, that's one they asked me over and over again during my years as a case manager. How could he? How? To me, how? He said he loved me and my kids. How could he? He made so many promises. How could he break them? How could he humiliate me like this in public? And what came after how was always a story. Always a story. A telling of the details, of the specifics of how each person had been hurt if they were capable of telling them. 
as though the story released the pain and the rage and the disappointment and the horror. Telling the story was part of healing. It is though by releasing the story from inside, they were putting it at the doorstep of the person who really needed to own it. How? How it happened? And it was always ugly, yes? I mean, these kinds of stories, the stories that we're talking about in Lamentations, the stories of being besieged by grief and suffering and horror, these are always ugly stories, and it's always hard to hear them it's always hard to receive them. I would claim that it is harder to tell them. But what I also remember about that work is that there was really nothing ever to say in response to a story like the ones that I have heard. All you could do was listen and allow space for emotion. Lamentations is the same. There are no whys. There's only a deep and abiding how, and a demand for the story to be heard and allowed and to put out into the world, to be heard by someone who can hold it, so that it couldn't be ignored and so that it could not be swept away. Because a story untold is a story ignored. Here's what I also notice in this book, and this is also hard to wrap my heart around, but here it is. If you read Lamentations from start to finish, God never speaks in this book. God is perfectly and blindingly silent. The authors don't allow God to speak into this space. They, they don't allow God to make excuses or to minimize or to defend or to shift blame. They simply tell their story and feel the emotions that come after a devastating loss. My husband Chris and I are often in the weird position of sitting next to the wrong couple in restaurants. We always end up in a booth or at a table where the people next to us are having the worst day of their lives. I, want, I often end up sitting next to someone where one person in the couple doesn't think they're on a date and the other one does. Those are very uncomfortable. I once watched a couple fight in a restaurant in this unfortunate superpower situation that we have of sitting next to the wrong people. It was one of those fights that is so bad that the couple has left their sense of propriety at the door and has forgotten or maybe stopped caring who's around or that other people can hear them. Has anyone ever been in that situation? Yeah, it's very uncomfortable. There's a tunnel vision that seems to set in, and uh, it seems like it's a battle to the end. I remember the man kept interrupting, this was a man and woman together, and the man kept interrupting the woman as they bent intently over their chips and salsa. We were at a Mexican restaurant. And they were just rigid with rage at each other. And they were kind of nose to nose, like over the table. It looked very intense, and it was. And I remember her putting her finger in his face and saying, no, you don't get to speak right now. That sentence set me back on my heels. They were fighting about his unfaithfulness to her. Now, the people in Lamentations have told God, no, you don't get to speak right now. 
I will speak and you will listen to me. Now I want you to take a second and think about that. <laughs> That's an intense fight at a restaurant. There's a lot there and everybody probably just watches. Like, okay, let's see what God does here. Let's see what God does here. Israel says, you've been unfaithful, and now you will listen. And so God does. This is the miracle of this book, is that God listens and, and listens while the city weeps and rages. My eyes are worn out with tears. My bowels churn because of the destruction of my people. How often we need this. When we're in the middle of real soul wounding, when something really terrible has happened to us, we need the opportunity to simply ask, how could this happen? And to place the story at the feet of the people who are responsible for it, and to sink really deeply into the emotional reality of it, and to hold there, and to feel, to really feel, and this is the key, without interruption. Listen, God, you don't get to interrupt. The elders of daughter Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young girls of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. There is so much hurt here. Acknowledging these dark feelings that come out of true trauma. This isn't just like how I feel. This is this is who I am. This is what's happened to me. This is deep, deep, deep. This is going to shape my future. I need to see it and be in it and let other people know that this is real. Acknowledging this reality is the only way to come to terms with what has happened and to eventually emerge on the other side. But I want to warn us as a church, as a community that acknowledges that spiritual and physical harm is real and lasting, that when we talk about the other side too soon, we do more damage. We do more damage than we do help. And so we as the faithful, as people with a divine spark within us, have to learn and practice how to watch and listen and wait before we leap there. Lamentations is actually a good guidebook for how to do this. It doesn't let us shy away from the anger the fury even, that comes in the midst of grief. It actually highlights and amplifies the feelings, lets them do their work, their cleansing, revelatory work, and it refuses to be interrupted. It is relentless, and it cannot be interrupted, even by God. So our culture, why is this a thing? Why am I talking about this? Well, what I notice as somebody who sits with people in grief an awful lot is that our culture shies away from this kind of feeling. Some of you may feel that too. We hide our dead in boxes and we don't touch the dying. We say I'm fine when we have stage four cancer, our marriages are falling apart in front of us, I'm fine. We talk about work or kids or television shows when our hearts and our bodies are disintegrating. We do anything we can to just put a buffer between ourselves and whatever it is that we have to feel right now. And when someone does have the guts or the impropriety 
to crash through the barriers that we've built around these feelings, and they dare to express suffering or grief or pain or rage or terror, especially in public, we immediately interrupt it and say, don't worry, honey, this too shall pass. Or God has a plan. Or it's all going to be okay. We all have those phrases built into our DNA at this point. It's like they've been written into our code. We are so threatened by our own feelings of discomfort that we steal real feeling from those courageous enough to be honest. We say, shh, shh, you're making me uncomfortable. Let's make this about me now. To what can I liken you that I may comfort you, O daughter Zion? For vast as the sea is your ruin, who can heal you? I love that line because it's like Zion is listening to herself. Jerusalem is listening to herself and saying, you are so hurt right now. Nothing is going to fix this. And that's what she needs to hear. This is truly as bad as you think it is. I'm with you. I'm with you. When people are this angry, hurt, confused, wounded, disoriented, ungrounded, perhaps we can learn something from this book about how to respond faithfully. So listen, church. Our job in the world is to accompany the suffering. We know this. Jesus has told us on many occasions that our one work is to say yes to the marginalized. This is the charge that, she, that he gave us and that the Spirit empowers us for. But when we encounter pain and we immediately turn from it, we're being unfaithful. Our communities are crying out to be heard. They're crying, how could you? How could you do this to me? How could you do this to us? And instead, we argue politics. We judge style of communication rather than its content. You didn't say that to me in the right way, and so I cannot listen to you. While at the same time, if we were really listening, we would hear black and brown, female, child, queer, poor, disabled voices screaming at us, you don't get to speak right now. You don't get to speak right now. Listen, hear my story. And this is the lesson chapter two teaches me today. I so badly want to judge God for staying silent. I so badly want to judge God for staying silent. It's a human compulsion so deep. We want to judge God for how God doesn't respond to suffering. It's so deep in us that we made up a word for it. We're like, the church needs a word for the fact that we can't figure out the problem of evil and how God reacts to evil. So we're going to call it theodicy, and we're going to make it really fancy, and then we're going to make Jules and Andy go to a bunch of classes about it in seminary and hope that at some point they figure out the answer. FYI. That was a failure. <laughs> Theodicy, the problem of suffering, is perhaps the single most important question that we ask as human beings. Where is God in the midst of suffering? And yet, this chapter teaches me something else. Yeah, God has promised. God is beholden to those promises. And we need to make space for the volcanic emotional depth that comes out of trauma. God gives us a model for this in these five poems written by a traumatized community. Of course, we can't solve racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia. We can't solve any of it because 
we haven't listened. We haven't listened without interruption. We don't listen to the pain like God does here. God steps back and says, I'm going to listen to you. In fact, God doesn't even say that. God just listens. We felt discomfort and we've moved too quickly toward fixing. God does not speak into that until the emotion is expressed. And I think that's helpful. I remember too that God doesn't speak to Jesus on the cross. Even Jesus asked God what the psalmist did in Psalm 22. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even Jesus asks God, where are you? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning, is what he says. God doesn't speak on Holy Saturday either, and we are about to approach the cross. And we always talk about Good Friday. We talk about Holy Thursday. Oh, we love the disciples in the upper room and the story of communion and betrayal. It's all very interesting, and the cross is so dramatic. But then there's Saturday and silence and nothing. And God doesn't speak there either. It's complete and blinding silence. But instead of thinking of it that way as a lack, um, lacking, as a missed opportunity by God to say something really important because the cross and the resurrection aren't important enough, clearly we want more. It's a permission, it's space to grieve, for the disciples to look back and to say, this person was more than just a friend. This person was a miracle. And to grieve that and to feel deeply and to be uninterrupted, precious time to reflect and to acknowledge what really happened and to live into it and to begin to tell stories about it. It's a painful time. But I don't think that we can heal without it when we rush too quickly through the emotions. Only afterwards, only after taking that time, I think, can resurrection actually arrive. I wonder if that's the hope and the good news in this most difficult chapter of this most terrible book of how. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to God for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. The good news is that while God is silent, God is listening. Listening to us when we tell God that in fact we've listened to God long enough and God now needs to listen to us. And that there's no punishment for that. We're afraid of feelings, but like I talked to the kiddos about today, sometimes we're even more afraid of our feelings toward God. And we can take the people Israel as our ancestors in speaking and in listening to God. They found the truth that no matter how terrifying the world, and I think that we can probably say that the Jewish people have experienced the most suffering of any people in the history of humanity. Over and over again, they just revisit the truth that no matter how terrifying, no matter how painful this world is, no matter how much suffering there is, no matter how much blame we choose to place at God's feet, our anger is something that God can handle. When we ask, how could you, God stands with us and says, I know, I know, I know. 
God never retaliates against Israel's feelings of anger, betrayal, rage, terror, none of it. God's responses are always about, Israel, what will you do now? Now that you have experienced this, how will you treat others? How will you have compassion for others who also suffer? Where is your love for the marginalized? When God gets angry, it's only ever about that. God listens when people suffer and becomes angry when they forget their responsibility to lessen the suffering of others, to be a blessing themselves. And so the message this morning is ask how. Push that question of why, even if you don't think you need to. Always ask how. As we continue through this series, ask those questions and get angry. Tell the story. If you have personal suffering in your life that you are just like, I can't even walk around that. It's so ugly. That's what a faith community is good for, is to help you walk through, to ask how, to be a listening place, to feel, to be present, and to not interrupt, to not speak right now. Tell the story. Rage, grieve, blame God. For God's sake, feel something. Don't let this culture that we're in tell you that you may not and steal that from you. The only way out is through. So I say go ahead and do it all. And be unafraid. Be unafraid. You cannot alienate God. You cannot do it. Do your worst. <laughs> do your worst. God will listen and remain no matter how bad your language or your feelings, no matter how ugly it gets. This, I hope, beloved, is good news in the midst of even your worst, hardest, saddest, most difficult lamentations. May God bless you and keep you in whatever you experience this week, this month, this year, and forever, knowing that this, your people, are here for you in whatever it is that you encounter. Amen. Come to the point in our service where we take some time to invite you this morning. And again, we'll remind you each week during this season of Lent. <laughs>